Well, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. Special thanks to Jim for filling in last week. And um, it was a last minute, called the bullpen last week, and I am feeling better. It's, you know, drugs are an, an important part of God's grace to uh, humanity, right? We love smart people who love the medical profession and uh, know how the body works, and that's always a good thing. Uh, I certainly hope you're enjoying uh, the beginning of this long weekend. Obviously, it's 4th of July, Independence Day. We celebrate um, the, the birth of our country and, um, or the documents that, that uh, founded it. And, of course, we, we always give thanks and want to give thanks that we are in a place where we can worship freely and uh, without fear of people coming in or that the tides will change and that we will not be able to, uh, to worship. But we do know that... Um, you know, obviously as a church, you know, this, our, the church is not the building. If this building were ever raised from the, the ground and this property were gone, that we would still gather um, in the name of Jesus. That is the, that's what holds us together. It's not a building. It's not anything. It's not even a country that holds us together. It is the love of Jesus and the transformative power. And so as grateful as we are for being in a country that has given us so many opportunities, um, we are beyond that grateful to our God for saving us, for loving us, and giving us the opportunity to encounter him. Amen? All right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, the big question for me this week is, how do you end the Gospel of John? I mean, we have been doing this since September, and this is the 33rd message. I, there's no, it's just like in, in the passage, like there's 153 fish. Why 153 fish? I don't know. Uh, nobody knows. Um, but why 33? This was just the way it worked out. But um, the question was just how, how do you end the Gospel of John? And um, the, the interesting thing is I don't think I'm the only person to ask the question, how do you end the Gospel of John? Because it seems like John didn't know how to end the Gospel of John. If you open up in your Bibles, let's open up in our Bibles to John chapter 21, and that's where we'll be today. And I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, um, I, I'm not critiquing John, but as you read through the Gospel of John and as we look at this, there is a little bit of a, like, it seemed like the passage that Jim read last week was like the drop the mic moment, right? Like Thomas, if you go back into chapter 20 and, and 27, verse 27, Jesus is like, hey, Thomas, here I am. Put your fingers in my wounds, put your hand in my side, and don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And then Thomas ends with the, the greatest um, uh, affirmation of the, of the deity and the wonder of who Jesus is, he says in, in 2028, my Lord and my God. It's the highest praise anyone in the book of John has given to Jesus. And then John ends in 2030, well, the, uh, Jesus says, have you believed? And then he gives a nod to people like us who don't get to encounter him face to face. He says, have you believed because you've seen Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And of course, that's us. Like, we've not been given a, a risen Jesus encounter. I, again, I don't want to speak on your behalf, um, but maybe the risen Lord has appeared to you. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, presume. But um, from what I understand, like, it's the Holy Spirit now in which we encounter the risen Lord, like, theologically speaking. Can I get, I'm like, nods. People are like, where are you going, Pastor Craig? Like, okay, but the idea is that um, we have not seen, and yet we believe. We believe based on the testimony. And so there's this great moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus is like, 
Thomas, you believe, that's great, but there's other people, blessed are they who've not seen, and yet they believe. And then John, it seems like he, he gives the, the drop the mic, he says in 2030. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? It's like, okay, that it feels like we've come to the end, the, the end of this. But one of the things that many scholars have worked, tried to figure out is like, what do we do with this extra, what feels like maybe an extra chapter? Is this an extra chapter? Is it added on at a later time? Now, here's the deal. We don't have any manuscripts of the Gospel of John that do not have chapter 21. And so 21 is, pro, is original to it. And, and here's the best way, to, I think, to understand this. If you go all the way back to September, the first passage that we talked about was John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, it's what they call the prologue of John. And then you get into John the Baptist and the story and all of that. But because you have a prologue, a beginning, an introduction to the book, John probably feels like, hey, there are some loose ends that still need to get tied up. As much as the Thomas episode is kind of the pinnacle, the crux, like any good movie you've watched, the, 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 the height of the movie is not always the end of the movie, is it? That you kind of wrap it up with some, with some also and maybe some foreshadowing, right? If you're, if you're any um, Avenger Marvel people, you're like, wait for the credits because there's another scene that's going to come. And this is kind of like that, that we have an epilogue to the book where John is going to try to forecast into the future, but also to tie up some loose ends. And so we have this morning before us this epilogue, which is really interesting. If the prologue was in the beginning was the word, the epilogue is about fishermen who have no fish and a fisherman who needs to become a shepherd. And so let's look at this together this morning. You guys with me? All right, let's look in chapter 21, and let's start, even as we look at this fish, these fishermen who have no fish, it all kind of revolves around this person of Peter. The epilogue is about the followers of Jesus and the mission of God continuing with them, but the story really revolves around Peter. So if we look at 21.1, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee, in the north. This is where Jesus' ministry took place predominantly. It didn't predominantly take place in Jerusalem. The end of his ministry did, but most of his ministry took place up in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And so <clears throat> what we see is that we're back up in the Sea of Galilee. And it says, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, two others of his disciples were together. And then Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. All right. So here, what, what do we make of this? And we're going we're gonna to talk about some of the issues about what exactly is happening here. Like, is, is Peter being disobedient by going back to fishing? Or is, this, or is this a natural progression? Like, what do we do with Peter and fishing? I'm not a big fisherman myself. Okay? And of course, when you think about fishing, you know, you're like, but that's not the way these guys would have fished. Like, they're like... But that doesn't look as good, right? Okay. All right. So, for, but we, I was told that because we don't have bulletins, I have to paint a picture today. 
So um, anyway, and the, the heart, the, the, anyway, we'll, we'll get, but the, the, the hardest thing about not having bulletin today, because our Wi-Fi all went down this week, um, but the picture on the front of the bulletin of the, of the lake with the, with the stones, that actually, ha- that picture is from the beach on which this episode takes place. It's, it's a place called Tabga on the Sea of Galilee, um, just between Capernaum and Magdala, is this great place, and we know exactly where it is and why, and I'll tell you as we move along, but why, how we know exactly what beach it is, um, and it's not just because, you know, some Bedouin trader's like, this is the exact beach, you know, it's, no, there's actually geographical markers of this. Okay, you guys are like, what are you talking about? Okay, Peter, let's talk about Peter. The last time we saw Peter, he was zealously lopping off ears in the Garden of Gethsemane, Okay. If we remember Peter, we go back, in the defense of Jesus, Peter has stepped up. So after Jesus gives the upper room discourse, and he's talking, he's talking about um, uh, someone will betray me, uh, but as, the, as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, there is a group of people that come by Judas, and they come to get him, 1336. I'll read it. You can turn if you want, but I'll just read it out loud. Um, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? This is after the Last Supper. And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So right after dinner, Peter's like, where are you going, Jesus? And Jesus is like, hey, you can't follow me. And Peter's like, I will follow you anywhere. We sang the song this morning, right? I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus is like, um, it's not going to happen that way. You're gonna, you are going to deny me before the rooster crows. So when the crowd comes to arrest Jesus in chapter 18, Peter must have thought, I said I was going to lay down my life for Jesus, right? And so when the crowd comes, and Peter knows, like, <clears throat> like this is going to be the time. Like, one guy with a sword against the crowd, this is my moment. I'm just going to make my stand, and I know I'm going to die. Sometimes we don't think, like, even in the, in the account itself, in the account itself, um, in 1815, it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did the other disciple, Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, 1810. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath, and I, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And Peter, if, if we think about this event, because I'm trying to understand Peter as we get to this epilogue, right? And we're trying to understand, like, what is, what's going on in his head? But if you think about it, he's already told Jesus... Like, Jesus, I want to go wherever you're going. Jesus is like, you can't go. Um, you're going to deny me. He's like, I'll leave down my life for you. And once all these people come to arrest Jesus, Peter's like, this is my time. I'm, you know, blaze the glory. Here we, I guess he would be right-handed. And he comes out and he's like, I'm, I'm going to lay down my life. And he's, you know, he's not very good. He's a fisherman. He's not a swordsman. So rather than cutting the guy's head off, he cuts his ear off. So a little bit of a difference there. Okay. Sorry. Um. But the, um, one of the things about this is this, is this is a bit of a shaking moment for Peter. And I don't know about you guys, if you've ever like launched into something without really thinking about it, 
and then you're a little embarrassed afterwards? Maybe that's just me. But not only just the embarrassment, but just even if you think about, I'm going to give my life in this moment. What sort of adrenaline might be pumping through your body? I spent my summers in college working up at Hume Lake Christian Camps, and every once in a while we'd go down into the canyon, King's Canyon, by the, uh, the King's River, and there are little offshoots of the King's River, and some of these places have um, like these deep pools, and you can jump off the rocks and go in. And, like, so we would go down, and we'd cross the river and go in this place called Tarzan Falls, and we'd, we'd climb up on these rocks, and we'd jump off. And there's, like, there's rocks that are like 10 feet, and you jump off, or 15 feet. But there was one rock that was like way up high, and I remember this one time... Um, you have to climb around the backside to get up to this rock, and um, you're up there. Once you get up there, you're like, you're committed because you can't climb back down. You're like, you got to jump into the water. And I remember this. I don't know if you've ever done anything stupid like this before, um, but I have, so just join in my stupidity for just a moment. Um, but you get up there. What you have to do, if you've ever been in a situation like this, it, is you've got to psych yourself up. Anybody? Like if you're going to jump off like 30 feet into water, like you've got to psych yourself up because you're dumb, right? And you've got to psych yourself up. So what you have to do is you have to get up there and you have to be like, okay, one, two, three, and you have to go. Now, here's what, it, what generally happens, and this happened to me, is you get up there and you're like, okay, one, two, three, and you're like, okay, that's, I need another count, right? But there's, a, there's also this sense in which you say, you go one, two, three, and you decide to do it. Now, this is what happened to me. I decided to do it, like one, two, three, decided to do it, but still was able to stop. Adrenaline, if you decide to do something and it doesn't work out, the adrenaline still pumps, right? And I, I tend to think about, um, and I eventually did go and I didn't hurt myself, I'm here today. There you go. Okay, don't try this at home, boys and girls. Okay, that's fine. But I like, when you think about Peter, Peter was ready. Peter was ready to give it all up. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, I mean, jumping off, a, off into water is one thing, but willing to give up your life is another. And being like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to die for Jesus. Sword out, in motion, the whole thing. And Jesus says, no. That's not the way we're going to do this. I have to think that was a shaking moment for Peter. That was a bit of a confidence shaker. Like as much as he said, I will give up my life for you, that now he's got to think like, I was ready, but Jesus said, no, how, am, how is this going to happen? And the next thing we see about Peter is he's following Jesus into his trials, and in 1815, he's following him with John, and they're entering into this courtyard of the high priest, look at 1816, Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who was at watch at the door, and they brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. It's a denial. In that moment, he was not ready. He was, he was not ready to give, he, even to let himself be known in this way. In verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. This word charcoal fire, it only occurs two times in the New Testament. One in this passage and the next one in our passage today. 
when Jesus cooks, he cooks over a charcoal fire. It's the only time these, this same word is used twice, and we're going to see that. All, both of these episodes that we see, Peter's denials, I am not, and we see that three times, are happening around a charcoal fire, and John is going to make it clear, well, charcoal fire made by Jesus' enemies, but now when we get to chapter 21, we're going to have another charcoal fire, around which now Jesus is going to ask questions again of Peter. And Peter's going to have an opportunity to answer these questions differently. But Peter denies Jesus three times, 1826, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, like he can't even get away from this. Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter said, yeah, I was the guy swinging the sword. No, he said no. He denied it again, and at once the rooster crowed. So we see Peter, as we go back, Peter is pledging his allegiance to Jesus, but he is failing in that. He's not doing it the way Jesus would want him to do. And now his confidence is shaken, and he's denying that he even knows Jesus. We hear of, again of Peter in particular at the resurrection account. On Easter, we talked about the resurrection account, how Jesus, this, the reappearance of Jesus is like a sunrise. Mary Magdalene sees him. She goes back and tells the disciples, John and Peter, they run. John makes it clear that he beats Peter to the tomb. A little competitive we have John there. He beats Peter to the tomb. He only peeks in, but Peter arrives and he runs in and he sees the clothes, the grave clothes. And they realize the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. But then we don't hear anything about Peter. Even after Jesus appears to the ten and then to the, the ten with Thomas, we don't hear anything particularly about Peter until this final episode. And what we see here is that Peter is now going fishing. As we said, verse 3, 21, 3. Simon Peter said, I am going fishing, and they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got in the boat, but they caught nothing. A couple things about the fishing, f- fishing episode, and we'll talk about the place and, and this, but one of the big things that commentators are a little bit split on is Peter going back to fishing, is he falling away? He said he was going to follow Jesus, and following Jesus meant following Jesus, not fishing, but following him, and going around and, and hearing his teaching and, and helping people and organizing this group of people. So is, it, is he falling away? Some, some commentators would say this is Peter going back to his old life. Now at the same time, I'm going to be a little bit, uh, give Peter a bit of a break. In Mark and in Matthew, when the angel appears to the disciples, the angel at the tomb, the angel says, go into Galilee, he will meet you in Galilee. So Peter actually just goes back to their home base, their headquarters essentially, to wait for their instructions. And what would you do if you went back to your home base? <coughs> like, you've got to make a living, you've got to eat, right? And so we're going to go fishing. So I, I do think that there's a little, I don't know if it's this, is, Peter, I don't know if he's falling away I don't think he is, but at the same time, this is not an episode you would see like in the book of Acts, would it be? Like in the book of Acts, all the disciples are on mission and they're ready to rock and they are not fishing. They are going out and they're proclaiming the gospel. But here we have Peter and the other disciples fishing. And so there's, there is a little bit of like, this is a little bit of an intermediate point before they are, they are really sent out on mission. 
But there's a couple things I think we should note about why John is including this particular episode as an epilogue. And one of the things is this, is that John wants to make it clear that the disciples can do nothing without Jesus. They can do nothing without Jesus. Actually, back in chapter 15, in, when we were talking about the vine and the branches, Jesus says, abide in the vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. In verse 5, it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this episode is a great example that even the seasoned fishermen who go out to fish, they have caught what? Bubkis. Nothing. They have not caught anything. And Jesus is on the shore. They need guidance from Jesus, which they'll get, but they also need empowerment from Jesus. I think John is making the point that whatever they do from this point on, they are going to need, they've got to do it in the power of Jesus, with the guidance of Jesus, and actually with Jesus. Here's another thing, and if you've been, if you've been keeping score at home and you've been following along, one of the other things that happens in this, when are they fishing? When do they fish? If you look at the passage, look at the passage. When do they fish in verse 3? It's at night. Night's no good. Night in the Gospel of John, like what? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Judas betrays Jesus and it was night. It was dark. Like the idea that Jesus is the light of the world but they're fishing at night. Now, I don't want to say anything about fishing practices. It probably is better to fish at night. But John is making the point that they are doing it in darkness. When does Jesus appear? Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Because he's the light of the world. He's the light of the world. And so you, you could walk in darkness... But Jesus is the light of life. And I know that you're, you're like, this is a lot of sim symbolism. And it's true because the prologue has a lot of symbolism to it in John. And now the epilogue is going to have an equal amount of symbolism to it. That Jesus is the light of the world. They are trying to do it in their own power at night. Jesus shows up and is like, hey, guys, other side of the boat. Guidance, empowerment, and what they do if we look at this. He says, Jesus says to them in 21.5, children, do you have any fish? And they say, no. Look at verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, I'm, I'm not going, to, unlike my shepherding sermons and my, um, my vine and branches sermons, I'm not going to pretend like I really understand what, fish, what like shepherding is or ventology or fishing. I don't know anything about fishing, Okay. Um, what I've heard, essentially, is this, uh, is that there's one side of the boat, the way the boats are made, there's one side of the boat that is the side that you put the nets on, and the boat is actually fitted for that sort of thing. And so Jesus saying, hey, throw it on the other side, is like, it's counterintuitive. They're like, no, that's not the way we're, we're outfitted for this. One, but one thing that is important about this, and this is one of the things about this, this beach that they're on, one of the reasons we know this is the beach is they're fishing and they're not that far out. They're only, they're only about 100 yards out. 
and um, it's shallow at that part of the Sea of Galilee. And what we know also about that part of the Sea of Galilee is where the Jordan River comes in is over by Bethsaida in Capernaum. That's cold water, cold fresh water, and all the fish stay at the north end of the lake because of the oxygen and the cold fresh water. But over on between Capernaum and Magdala is Tabga, and there are actually seven hot springs that come out there. And the hot springs come out, and you get a different type of fish. You don't get the tilapia, you get the smaller fish, and that's why what you do is you would wade in with these nets, you wade in with these nets, and you try to catch these smaller fish. They've gone all night, they're trying to round up all these fish, and they don't get any of it, but listen to what happens. So they cast it, and they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land. And actually, I think it was um, when Sarah was reading it, it talks about that these are not small fish, these are big fish. So they actually catch the wrong type of fish fishing the wrong type of way. And again, it punctuates this idea that with Jesus with them, with his guidance, it doesn't matter how this all happens, you are going to be fruitful, that those who abide in the vine are going to be fruitful. And so they obey, and they catch all of this fish. Peter, he, I don't, he, he's working in the boat, and usually when you worked in the boat, you would be kind of stripped down. He wasn't naked. He probably had a a, a loincloth on, but um, in order to go to shore, what he, it says that he puts on his outer garment and then goes in. He probably just takes his outer garment, puts it on his back, jumps in the water, and starts wading in. It's not like he puts on his clothes and starts swimming. No, they don't really know how to swim, believe it or not. Um, they would wade in. He would wade in, and so he goes into the shore to meet Jesus by this fire after he hears that it is the Lord. verse 9, when they got to land, they saw a charcoal fire, the same, fi same kind of fire that we saw in the denials, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus had already caught fish. They had worked all night. Jesus had already caught fish and made bread. And then Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. And this is important. They've worked all night. They haven't caught anything because they're doing it in dark. They're doing it without Jesus. When Jesus shows up, they receive his guidance and they work with him. Miraculous catch. But what does Jesus want to do? He's already caught fish. He's making them breakfast. But what does he say? Hey, bring some of those fish that you just caught. Like you just caught. You didn't catch them. I caught them. But Anyway, but bring some of those fish. Like, Jesus is like, hey, we're going to make, we, I want to do this. I don't want you to do it alone. I want to do it with you. I, I want to do it with you. As a matter of fact, I'm even going to make breakfast for this whole thing. But bring some of those fish that you just bought or just caught. Jesus wants to partner. When they got to the land, they saw the charcoal fire in place 
with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And it says the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this miraculous catch teaches us a little bit about Jesus is, is alive, that as we look into the future, the disciples, as they do the work, whatever the work is that they're going to do, it has to be done with Jesus, with the guidance of Jesus, and with the empowerment of Jesus. We might have great ideas about what we're going to do and how this is all going to happen, but we need, we need to pause and we need to ask Jesus, are we going in the right direction? Do you have a better idea? I think one of the best prayers that is in my arsenal, one of the best clubs in the bag, the prayer bag, is essentially this, to stop and to pray and to say something like this, God, you have an opinion about what we are doing here. Would you help us to know what that opinion is? Which way ought we go? I think another great prayer is to say, God, we're moving in this direction. We think this is a good idea. If this is something that you want us to do, then continue to open doors to allow that to happen. If it's not, Lord, then start to shut those doors and point us in a new direction. Prayers for guidance. Like these, and again, you might be thinking, like, why would you pray this? I'm like, because Jesus has promised that he will be with us. That he will abide in us. That the Holy Spirit is going to provide and is going to move. So I think these are, these are great ideas about whatever we're doing in our ministry or at our church or, or, or whatever we're doing in your work. I think there's times in work, maybe you're at work and you're like, I have no idea what to do about this problem. Is just to, just to stop and say, Lord, I know that you have an opinion about this thing. Would you help me to know what your opinion is about this thing? These guys, if they were like, Jesus, what side of the boat should we throw? The, you know, but, but also to be open to the idea that Jesus might answer with like kind of an unconventional answer. Like, hey, what my opinion is, is don't throw it over on the correct side, throw it over on the wrong side. Let's see what happens. And then these guys are obedient to do that. So that, that's the first thing, the first thing about this particular episode. I think the second thing is going back to Peter here. Let's go back to Peter. Look at verse um, 2115, 2115. As they're gathering around this charcoal fire, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, pretty, pretty formal. And some people, we, we don't know a lot about Peter and who his dad was. Um, Simon, son of John, the word for John is also the same, it's the same name as Jonah, so some people actually argue that, some people will say Simon's father's name is Jonah. That's Other people say what Jesus is doing here when he calls Simon son of Jonah is that um, Simon is going to be a prophet like Jonah was, reluctant. Now whatever is the case, Jesus is pretty formal here. And, and it's almost like Jesus is reintroducing himself to Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's a tough question. It's even a tough question. Like, what are the these? And what does it mean by more? Like, it's a comparative. Jesus is asking, hey, Simon, do you love me more? There's two options. Do you love me more than these fishing tools? Maybe that's what he's asking. Like, do you love me more than you love fishing? 
okay? Or maybe he's saying, do you love me more than you love your friends here? Or he could be asking, do you love me more than these people love me? Now, probably earlier in, in Simon's ministry, right, in Peter's ministry, he would, he would have been the first to say, I love Jesus, you know, we lo- I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you? I love, you know, like, he would be like, no, I love Jesus best. He might have had that sense about him. But he's been humbled, has he not? He's done some ear lopping, the adrenaline is pumped, he's denied Jesus around a charcoal fire, and now around a charcoal fire, Jesus is asking him, do you really love me more than these? Now, with this, there's oftentimes a lot made. If, you, if we keep reading in verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he drops the more than these. Do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. We'll get to the feed my lambs, tend my sheep. But then there's a third time. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, there's oftentimes been um, a lot made of when Jesus asks. So when Jesus asks, he uses one verb for love. Um, Simon, do you love me? And the verb is agapao. It's the the word agape. Do you love me? Do you agape love me? And when Peter answers, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And he uses a different verb for love, which is phileo. And there's actually, a lot of people will make a big deal about Jesus, that, that agape is a deeper, more substantial sense of love, a higher love than phileo. The problem is, um, John uses the two terms interchangeably throughout the gospel. Like the father loves the son and the son loves the father. And there's, those are interchangeable agape phileo. So there's not... Uh, if you've heard a sermon on this before, sometimes a lot can be made out of the love language. Um, but probably what's happening here is they're just, they're, he's just asking about, do you love me? There's no difference between the responses. Do you love me more than these? You know I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I'm grieved that you're asking me a third time. I think the point is not that the, the difference in love, the point is that Jesus is asking three times. And of course, we as readers, as we look at this, maybe it was lost a little bit on Peter originally, but as the readers were led in on the secret, three questions around a charcoal fire. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter failed. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter answers wisely for you Indiana Jones fans out there. You chose wisely, right? The response, do you love me? You know I love you. But Peter is being, oftentimes we call this the reinstatement of Peter. I think this is essentially the realignment of Peter. He has come into Galilee. He's like, we got to fish, we got to fish, we got to take care of things. And now Jesus is saying, hey, um, every time... Peter says, you know I love you. What does Jesus say? He first says, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, 
and then tend my lambs. I think it's interesting that on a shore of a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee where you have all these fishermen, he's like, hey, Peter, I know you're a fisherman, but what I really need you to be is a shepherd. We see it earlier in like the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of uh, Matthew where uh, Jesus will come to these guys as they're fishing. He's like, hey, I, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's a vocation change. And here the way John puts it is, what we need to do is we need to take you as from being fishermen and now I need to un- let you understand, I am the good shepherd and I need you to be my under shepherds. I need you to be a shepherd. I don't know if you've ever experienced a vocation change in your life. I remember for me, um, I was working, at, I finished a PhD, I was working in higher education, I was a professor, I was also doing some church consulting things, and you know, when you're a consultant, you think you're pretty awesome because everybody's calling on you because they have a problem and you've got answers, right? And like, um, and as I was doing consulting and as I was doing all this stuff, I started to realize that God was saying, um, hey, Craig, it's great that you're a professor and it's great that you're a consultant, but what I really need you to do is I need you to be a pastor. And it was, and, and, and essentially, and that's how, how I ended up here. I ended up talking to a couple churches, but that's how I ended up here, is that God was like, hey, I need you to be a pastor. I need you to be a pastor. And I think God, it took time, it took time for God to kind of move in my life toward this. And oftentimes people would ask me, like, when did you feel a call to ministry? I would say, I, I would always say, like, I don't know if I ever was called to ministry. I felt like I was called to the Bible But I can say about the pastoral vocation, like, I do remember that God was like, hey, I need you to be a pastor. Like, there's a church somewhere out there, and it happened to be in Orange, right? There's a church out there that needs a pastor, and I need you to do that. And I don't know, again, maybe like, kind of like uh, Peter, like the reluctant prophet, like Jonah or whatever. Like, but Jesus is like, hey, I need you to feed my sheep. I need you to feed my sheep. And again, I don't know, I don't know where you guys are at in, in your relationship with Jesus or even your vocation. Like we all have different skills and abilities that God kind of that our lifetime brings to us over time. And sometimes, sometimes the skills that God gives us move us into kind of the the uh, the professional world, and we kind of do our thing, and our spiritual life kind of goes on in parallel to that, but they never really cross over, they never really connect. Like so whatever it is that you do, like how does that all connect? But there are times where God's like, hey, what I, what I need from you right now in this season is I need you to rethink your vocation. Like you might be an accountant, but what I need you to do is I need you to shepherd people. And maybe that's not being a, being a pastor particularly, or changing your job, but what I need you to do is I need you to lead a small group. I need you to shepherd a small group of people. Or maybe you, you, you have a, you have a, a, you work, maybe we got plumbers in here, right? Maybe you're a plumber, but it's like, hey, what I need you to do is I need you to love your people that you employ. Like, maybe it's, maybe it's you can keep doing the things you're doing, but God's like, hey, what I really need you to do, though, 
is I need you to be a beacon of light in the darkness where you work. Like you, you might have misunderstood your vocation. Like Peter, like Jesus is like, look, I know you're a good fisherman, even though you didn't catch anything without me. Like, I know you're a good fisherman, but what I need you to be is a shepherd. And what we do see of Peter is that he does enter into a life of leading God's people, of shepherding God's sheep, of following Jesus with all his heart. And what we do see from church tradition, we don't see it in the New Testament, but we see it from church tradition, is that Peter does lay down his life eventually for, for Jesus' sake. And there's different traditions about how that happens, but the tradition, one of the traditions is that Peter chooses to be crucified upside down because he does not think it fitting for him to die in the same way that his master died. It's a tradition. It might be myth, but we do know that he dies and gives his life for the gospel. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. John 21, 18, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter does. Probably by the time the gospel of John is written, because John is probably the the last of the four gospels to be written, maybe in the 80s or 90s of the first century, by that time Peter has already died under, under the hand of Nero in the 60s. Peter's already given his life. And so John, as he is reporting this, he's talking about how Jesus is preparing Peter. Look, you might not give your life for me today on this last day before I die, but you will eventually give your life on my behalf. And Peter does. Because Peter was open to being realigned. He was open to being reinstated. He was open to recognizing, I blew it. But Jesus says, there is nothing that is going to disqualify you for what I have for you. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to tend my lambs. And it's transformative for Peter. I think as we, as we kind of finish this up and we just think about even the Gospel of John, you know, the Gospel of John is all about these encounters with Jesus. Whether it's Nicodemus who comes at night and Jesus is like, hey, Nicodemus, I know you're in darkness, but you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. And we get to see the transformation of Nicodemus at the end, and eventually he's the guy who's procuring the spices for Jesus' burial. He, that he ends up loving Jesus. The woman at the well. She's, she doesn't want to talk to Jesus, and Jesus is like, look, I came here at noon because I need to talk to you. And she's like, she goes back into her hometown, and she says, he told me everything about what I've done. And she becomes the first evangelist. Transformative. Because Jesus shows up. Think about the man born blind. They're like, where's the guy who healed you? He's like, I don't know, I was blind. I can't pick him out of a crowd. But I believe in him. I don't know who he is, but I will follow him. And his life is changed. And now Peter. I think think John wants us to understand. When people encounter Jesus, it's transformative. It changes lives. And as you've heard the message of the gospel, I would imagine there, there's all kinds of stories in here about how God has transformed your life. That I was once this way, but God has made me into someone new. 
Or even right now, like I'm in a spot where I feel like God is moving in my life. He's making me into something I am not already. You know, I don't think it's wrong to pray today and ask for an encounter with Jesus. Now, I would recognize, I'm, we're, you might not be asking, like, I would love to be like, Jesus, I'd love it if you showed up and made me breakfast. I love breakfast. It would be awesome. Like, that would be so cool, right? Now, it, we might not get Jesus in the resurrected body standing before us. But he did promise that the Holy Spirit would be with us. He does promise that, and as the, as the Apostle Paul says, that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God's Son. It's the Spirit of Jesus. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at, but I, look, I'm going on sabbatical. We're, this is, we're finishing John, and I'm going on five weeks of sabbatical. But look, I, I'm praying for a, an encounter with Jesus. I, I, because, because, because I can. Because there's nothing, there's nothing that rules that out. That the Holy Spirit is active, is, is, is alive. And I know we pray and we, we talk about God the Father and God the Son and God's word is living and active. Like, no, it's not the Bible that's li- The Bible is living and active, like the book of Hebrews says, but it's the Holy Spirit that moves in us. God the Father and God the Son come and make our, their home inside of us because of the Holy Spirit. And I, I don't know where you're at with your faith, and maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, and you're like, look, I, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And what I would say is essentially this, like, Jesus... If you ask for an encounter with Jesus, one thing I know that he will do is he will hear that prayer. He will hear that prayer. And I also know that Jesus will not leave us as orphans. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come back for you. I will come and make my home. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. There is, there is no, there's no crime, there's no Christian crime in saying, Jesus, I want more of you. I want to encounter you. Because look, I know if I read the Gospel of John right, if I encounter you, I will probably be puzzled by it. I will not know what to do with it. I know that. Read the Gospel of John. Everybody who encounters Jesus is like, what the heck just happened? But I do know clarity will come, and I also know there will be transformation. If there's anything that God deals in, God knows how to change someone's life. And he won't do it by guilting you into anything. He will just do it by saying, look, I just want you to know how much I love you. And if you think about Jesus showing up, Jesus shows up like the woman at the well. and she's like, She's like, what are you doing here? He's like, I came for you. Nicodemus, I know you're in darkness, but come, let's talk. I can't even tell you just how open Jesus' arms are to anyone. He, and he, it's interesting because he's so accommodating to every person, to those who are near and far. But just how much transformation comes from him. He doesn't call, he doesn't just accommodate himself to everybody. He says, look, come to me. I will do the work of transformation. I've been thinking about like Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. 
let me show you how to work. Like, if you're, if you're here and you're just thinking, man, I, yeah, I followed Jesus for a long time, and again, I got this idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, but maybe there's something just inside, like, I know there's more. I know I want more. Like, is it wrong to want more of Jesus? Is it wrong to want more? It's not wrong. Jesus shows up on the shore, yells out to the boat. Like, you don't think he can find you and yell out to you wherever you are? Or show up, he shows up in the middle of a locked room. Like, Jesus can show up. And it's not wrong to pray that he does. He does. 